Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Church, the word of the Lord. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Say this with me. In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Israel had, had a number of expectations of God. We have expectations of God. Would you agree? The question is, how did God meet their expectations or not? How does God meet our expectations or not? Just think about that and think about your, how, what do you expect of God? What do you put on to God? Another question I want to pose to you is this. Does Christianity work for you? Presumably, yes, because you're all here, right? We're persevering in the faith. But how many of us have heard people say, well, you know, I I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me. Totally wrong perspective. Totally misunderstanding what Christianity is about. This is why it's imperative for us as believers, when we communicate the gospel to people, we share with them, we have good news. And that good news is that God saves us from sin and death and hell. Gives us a brand new life. Now the people of Malachi's day, as I said, they had expectations of God, as do people in every generation. And these people particularly believed that they had done their bit for God. But that God has not done his bit. God has not kept up his end of the deal. According to Malachi, as we've been reading through and studying through this book, there were people who were guilty of many, many serious sins. The priests were offering blemished animals in a formal but insincere religious ritualism. The priests were not teaching the truth, the word of God. Many were divorcing their wives to marry unbelieving pagan women. Most had been disobeying God's laws by withholding tithes of their harvest. And they were all accusing God of loving them 
only half-heartedly and of being unjust in his dealings with them because he had not prospered them as they had expected. He had not prospered them adequately. Sometimes some of us may feel like, God, you, 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 you haven't really met all my needs. And we translate needs as wants, don't we? Lord, I have all these wants. Where are you? How come you haven't met them? If they could have put their words and their feelings this way, other than using the words that Malachi uses, they might have said this. Let me paraphrase. Quote, we have been utterly faithful in fulfilling our responsibility to God. Never mind the divorces. Never mind the mixed marriages. Never mind the animals we've brought, even though they were sick and lame and blind. Never mind the tithes. We have kept our side of the bargain through many things. Many things that seem important to us. Ooh. The problem is that God has not kept his side of the bargain. We've been faithful. He's been unfaithful. In short, they could easily say this. Obedience to God doesn't work. We don't take a pragmatic view towards our faith. Does it work or not work? It's the truth. And we live according to the truth. But they would say, obedience to God doesn't work. God has not prospered us as we think he should. And the fault is his alone. Have you ever said, God, why did you make me like this? Why don't you make me like that person? Why don't you bless me like that person? We end up blaming God for things that we think that he should do differently. He says in verse 6 of himself, God says, I have not changed. I have not changed. It's the people who have changed. It's the people who have changed, falling away from a true devotion for him and from the truly righteous life that their forefathers once lived. In chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, this is alluded to. Malachi says, the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Speaking about the first, their forefathers. Verse 7, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So way, 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 way back, there's a history of devotion to God. But now he's saying, you people have not kept that devotion. Are you with me? But in another sense, the problem is that the people, and some of us may need to include ourselves in this, the people had not had changed so little. Should we be changed people? Should we be different people? I remember when I first became a believer, I'd go to all my friends, family, everybody with my Bible, and I would share with them, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm born again. In fact, they said to me, are you one of those born agains? I said, I think I am. Of course, I didn't know what that was all about, but I just knew I need Jesus. And so they all poo-pooed me. You know, have you ever had people say this? We're happy for you. We're glad you found something that works for you. But don't bug me. 
One guy came up to me afterwards. He said, you know what? You're different. I like you better. <laughs> I thought to myself, whoa, what about before? <laughs> Though these people had fallen from their original early devotion to God, they were nevertheless exactly as they had been for much of their history. So on one hand, they had changed, but on the other hand, they really hadn't changed. They were exceedingly sinful and self-righteous. What does it mean to be self-righteous? What does it mean to be self-righteous? It means, very simply, that you keep justifying yourself. Have you ever said, someone's talking to you and accusing you, you say, but, 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 but. <laughs> Self-justifying. These people were exceedingly sinful and self-righteous. They needed to repent. So God says to them in verse 6 again, I, the Lord, do not change. We see his faithfulness evident in the most gentle way he continues to deal with these stubborn, sinful, stiff-necked people. These are, these are the words he uses to describe them, aren't they? Instead of summarily rejecting them and ceasing to show them any concern, any love, he reviews with them how persistent his love has been for them. He just keeps going back, reminding them. It has continued. His love has continued for them, even though since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. I'm still here. I've not changed. I've not gone anywhere. While Israel has remained fickle and undependable, the living God has never wavered in his decision to choose them, in his decision to bless them, in his decision to love them. And you and I are in the same position, aren't we? God has never wavered. He never will waver in his decision to choose you. Do you know as a believer, as born again person, God has chosen you? He's chosen you. He's called you. He loves you. And he keeps you. Somebody say amen. 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 See, his faithfulness to Israel is a testimony to us as believers that he is faithful to us. Even though we slip and slide and fall back and goof up and do all the stuff that we do as fallen beings. He doesn't change. Reminds me of the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. And the writer says of Jesus, he says what? Jesus Christ is what? The, the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. He is my Savior. He continues to be my Savior. And he continues to love me. Now question, what has been the message of all of Israel's prophets to the people. What is the same consistent message, including Malachi's message? What is the same message to all of Israel? Begins with R. Repent. 
Repent. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Have all the prophets called Israel to repent? Sure. If they didn't need to repent, he would not have needed to send the prophets to call them to repentance. He says, return. Return to me. Come back to me. We call that repentance. Israel and all who will ever hear this call are urged to reverse direction. If you happen to be a non-believer this morning with us and we're glad you're here and maybe God has called you here to hear some things. Repentance means simply that you're walking in one direction and God's back here and you're walking away from him and he says return. Turn around. One, do, you do a 180 and now start walking towards him. It's just that simple. It's a decision that we make. Instead of heading off towards Self and sin and contemporary idols, whatever those might be, turn around and look in faith to Jesus. Just look in faith. You may have to hitchhike on someone's faith for a season, but look in faith, believe. In chapter 2, verse 17, They're complaining. Their complaint is, where is the God of justice? They're complaining. Where is the God of justice? Now question, why had these complainers waited in vain for God to bring justice from their perspective on the evildoers and for their own prosperity and deliverance to come? Why had they waited in vain? Was the problem to be found with God? Do you think? No. The problem was found with the people. They had continued to rebel against the Lord since the time of their founding fathers. Even though they continued to regard themselves as holy and righteous. <laughs> I've talked to people who, said, who are just clearly in sin. Unrepentant. And they'll say, but I love Jesus. You can't possibly love him and continue to live the way you're living. Don't tell me that. And please don't tell anybody else that. We have enough bad press as it is. You see, the people failed to acknowledge their problem. They insisted they were righteous. And they, they give this whimper of innocency by saying, who? Us? We need to repent? Not us. We never left. We never went away. Why should we repent? Justifying themselves. With such an unrepentant attitude, how possibly could God turn in the blessing the people so desperately craved. The only thing left to do was to embarrass them by pointing to one glaring example of where Israel had refused to turn to the Lord, and that is in their tithing to him. 
Now, let me just remind us of something. When you give, when you tithe, when you bring an offering, you're not giving to the church. Who are you giving to? You're giving to God through the church. Okay? Let's make sure we have that straight. I hear that far too well. Well, you know, give to the church. No, no, no. You're giving to God. This is God's money. You're giving him back something that belongs to him. Now, this isn't to say that it was only their only sin or that the sin of their lack of tithing has a greater status than any other. But it did show that these complainers were willing to cheat God. They were willing to rob God. I don't know about you. Every time I read that, in all the years I've been reading this, I can't imagine who would dare rob God. Can you get behind that? Who could dare rob God? And yet, there they were. They were willing to place, on the, on the first hand, they're willing to place blind, crippled, diseased animals on the altar of God. They were willing to neglect God's people, actually becoming stumbling blocks to God's people, not teaching his word. They were willing to injure the wives with whom they had made a covenant of trust, divorcing them and marrying the daughters of foreign God. They were willing to defraud God in giving their tithes and offerings from the very beginning, from the very beginning, giving is to be an act of devotion and an act of gratitude. From the very beginning, Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, both of them worshipped with gifts placed before God. And those gifts were to represent their devotion to him and their gratitude to him. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 14, gave the priest Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils had taken when he rescued Lot. Again, expression of devotion and gratitude. These are not legalistic prescriptions. They're, they're expressions of devotion and gratitude. Moses, even when Moses instructed the people in the law, Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, that the tithe was holy to the Lord, again, it was meant to be an expression of what? Devotion and gratitude. Say that with me. Devotion and gratitude. When you and I give, it's an expression of what? Devotion and gratitude. God, I'm devoted to you. I'm devoted to your cause. I'm devoted to your will. I'm grateful to you. But turning from his, the Lord's decrees, the people have turned from the Lord himself. We cannot follow God without the guidance from his word. Christianity is not just some subjective experiential thing. I just kind of do what feels spiritual. No, 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 no. You can't really follow God. We worship in spirit and truth. You can't follow God without the guidance of his word, which must be carefully carefully understood and heeded lest we, we stumble unless we veer off the path. Am I making sense? Are you with me? Yes. Now for the fifth time in our text, 
Malachi uses this question and answer dialogue mechanism to express the people's attitudes toward the Lord's message. The problem was that they failed to recognize that they had strayed from God's path. They didn't realize it. Duh. Although they were acutely aware of the absence of his blessings, they were unaware of the absence of his presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. Israel is kind of like this stereotypical husband who has failed to recognize that his relationship with his wife has deteriorated. Duh. How many know that men are obtuse? Just, we're clueless. Gals, we're clueless. That's why you're in our life. And of course, women are insatiable. True, you can't satisfy him. You just can't. Guys, guys pull their hair out, right, Mark? Because you just can't satisfy him. Who can satisfy a woman? We just keep at it. These people are obtuse. They are radically out of order. They ask these questions of God. They're just clueless. How have you loved us? How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you? How have we wearied you? And now, how are we to return? And how do we rob you? They ask other questions that are similar. Why do you not accept our offerings? (laughs) We'll see next week and. Later on, it's chapter 3. What have we said against you? In each case, the people in asking those questions are not looking for information. They're not looking for answers. You know what they're doing? They are complaining and disputing. And here, they arrogantly question why they should need to repent. How can we return when we've never really gone away? We haven't moved. We're the same. Yes, that's the problem. Would you say the Lord's patience with his people is exceedingly amazing? God has not given them what they deserve, has he? He's given what they don't deserve. How many know Dave Ramsey? I've adopted his response. People say, how are you? Better than I deserve. I love that. I say that to everybody, wherever I am. People say, hey, how you doing? Better than I deserve. That catches people. They've never heard that before. Sometimes, sometimes, someone will stop me and say, better than you deserve. What do you deserve? (laughs) What an opening. (laughs) I deserve death and hell. I deserve to go to hell. No. Yes. Man, but Jesus saved me. At that point, some people go, oh, okay, nice. Good for you. <laughs> now, the Lord might have responded to the questions that Israel poses to them 
by pointing again to their insulting so-called worship. He could have easily reminded them of their treachery, of their breaking faith with one another, especially with the wives of their youth. He could have reminded them of their profaning his sanctuary by marrying pagan idolaters or their apparent toleration or even practice of sorcery, adultery, perjury, and the economic exploitation of the defenseless. But he doesn't do that. Instead, the Lord brings to their attention another area in which their rebellion against him was manifesting itself, and this was the withholding of their tithes. Why is this so important? You would think adultery. You would think these other things, sorcery, witchcraft, you would think these other things are so much more vile than withholding tithes. Just a tithe. When God gave Israel the promised land as their inheritance, he made it clear to them that it was actually, notice with me, Leviticus 25 and verse 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is whose? It's mine, your aliens and my tenants. So God gave the land as their inheritance to the people as a stewardship. They were to steward that land. And we are too, aren't we? And one reason, one reason for this was the sinful human tendency to disconnect the gift from the giver. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not what? Forget the Lord. We have a tendency to forget, to separate the gift from the giver of the gift. God says to them, don't forget me. Don't forget me. This is why he said this is a stewardship. This doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. Are you with me? And how they regarded and how they treated the land would demonstrate whether they acknowledged his lordship over them, their dependence on him, and their gratitude to him. All in how they, they dealt with that which God entrusted to them. And these acknowledgments, acknowledgments were to be expressed in Israel's festivals. First fruits, weeks, tabernacles. In the weekly Sabbath observance of rest. The Sabbath year as well as the year of Jubilee. They never, they never actually practiced the Sabbath year and they never practiced the year of Jubilee. That's why the 70 years of Babylonian captivity was so significant, that number, because it was just a reminder to Israel, they never, they never practiced the Sabbath year nor the Jubilee year. And even in their sacrifices and offerings, especially the consecration of the firstborn and in the tithe, these things all were to be acknowledgments and reminders of God's provision. And they were not only acknowledgments, but also reminders that God has been faithful in his promises. 
Every time they would celebrate one of the festivals, every time they would practice the Sabbath rest, every, every time they would do these things that God says, these are designed for you to acknowledge me. We are reminded that God has been faithful in his promises. If the land and its produce belong to God, as Leviticus 25, 23 declares, then all the more so did the tithe belong to God. Leviticus chapter 27. Now it's important, I think, among other things, to understand what Israel's tithes and offerings included. And when you go through and you study what all the tithes and offerings were, you're just amazed. Let me just run down a short list for you. Under the law, Mosaic law, the Israelite had to bring the first very first offering was what was due to the priests. And this could be anywhere from 2 to 10% of their income. Then the Israelite would bring the basic tithe, 10%. The Israelite was also required to pay a second tithe, another 10%, that was to go to Jerusalem and the needs of the city. And this was to fund the festivals. So you could actually call this a pilgrimage budget because they would all make pilgrimage to the festivals. Then every third, third and fifth year of the seven-year cycle, there was a third tithe that went to the poor. So the basic thing, the basic tithing, was probably more like 22 to 27% of their yearly income. And this didn't even include the offerings the animals that we brought to the festivals. It didn't include the extra money to be paid for sin offerings and trespass offerings, which could be high according to whatever sin they were confessing. The tithing system also called for the people to have a, a Sabbath year. That would mean one-seventh of their uh, income over a seven-year period would be given up, as well as the Jubilee year, one forty-ninth of their income would be given up over that period. They were to leave the corners of their fields for the poor to glean. They were to give to charity. They were to take care of the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the stranger. On top of all that, they could at any time offer a free will thank offering, which required more animals and more gifts. So summing all that up, if someone today wanted to live under Israel's laws of tithes and offerings, the amount could exceed 40% a year. Kind of reminds us of our own tax system, doesn't it? Yeah. The people's failure to bring these to God or the, the opposite, to bring the gifts and offerings, worthless things, was a clear sign of their lack of gratitude, their lack of devotion, their disloyalty to him. Clear sign. Their unfaithfulness to God was evidenced, therefore, in their lack of giving, which for Israel was serious. Now note this, because giving is at the heart of the covenant. When you enter into a covenant relationship, when you enter into a covenant relationship, is marriage a covenant relationship? Absolutely. What is incumbent upon you in that covenant relationship? That you be a what? Giver. 
that you give yourself, you give your life, you give your resources. They were in a covenant relationship with God, which meant that they were responsible for the end of the bargain, and that was giving. If they're not giving, they're not acknowledging their covenant relationship with him. You see how vital this is? And in so doing, they're acknowledging again that their very lives, their possessions, everything they have are from him. But we, we owe you everything. We owe you everything. Giving properly was a sign that they acknowledged this, that they were demonstrating their utter dependence on him for everything. But they had not been faithful in their tithes and their offerings. And so the whole land is under a curse. The whole land. This means that the whole nation was not being faithful. The whole land is under a curse. Nothing was growing. There was no rain. And what was growing was being eaten by pests, probably locusts. So from God's perspective, his people have been robbing him. So he has removed his hand of blessing. If they would repent, he would restore that hand of blessing. That's all he asks. Turn, turn back to me. Turn back to me. How many parents do we have? <laughs> Does that sound familiar? You want the hand of blessing to be back on you, or you want the hand of discipline to be on you? <laughs> he challenges his people to bring what? The whole tithe to prove his promises by being faithful steward. If you're a faithful steward, you bring the whole tithe. You watch, you watch. My promises are true. He challenges his people to act in faith on his promises of protection and provision. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The whole tithe may suggest that they may have bringing, been bringing something, but not nearly enough. And the purpose of doing this was that there may be food in my house. Now, the food in the temple would be, in effect, a constant supply for the priests, for their families, for the Levites, for the musicians. Aren't you glad, Alan? Justin. <laughs> for the temple servants and for the poor. They've made food in my house. That these guys don't go begging. These, remember, the Levites, none of these people had property of their own. They were, their tribes were not allotted their own property. They didn't have jobs outside. They were dependent on the people's faithfulness. It was important for the economy of Israel, as well as the religious activities, that the people bring what was required. And then... As if to motivate the people, he challenges them. He says, test me. Test me in this. And see if I will not provide for you more than you ever gave and more than you could ever possibly contain. Does that sound familiar? I read someplace where Jesus says something like, give and it will be given to you. Press down, shaking it, running over. 
to test God would be an act of faith. It would be an act of faith. And that, of course, would be very different from the wilderness generation who tested God because they didn't believe him. God was calling his people to act on his promises, his word, to prove them true. Just come on, just obey his, just read the Bible and do what it says. And you'll find out God's word is sure and it's true. Although it's wrong to test God with complaining and rebellion and unbelief, it's not wrong to test him with obedience, and especially when he commands it. And what would they discover? What would they discover if they actually did what God said? <laughs> you got nothing to lose. You got nothing to lose. What would they discover? Listen to what he says. I'm going to open what? The drippy faucet? I'm going to open what? Dean, what's he going to open? The floodgates. When was the last time God opened the floodgates of heaven? A worldwide flood. Inundated the earth. I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing. You will not be able to contain it. Who in their right mind would go, no, no, I don't think so. I'm not doing it. But not only that, he prevent the pests from devouring their crops. He's going to rebuke the locusts. No more eating. Their vines would not cast their fruit. And I love this part. Then, then, all the nations, everybody is going to do what? They're going to say, oh, you poor people. No, what are the people going to say? What are the, all the nations going to say? You are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. Israel was to be a blessing in God's design plan. Israel was to be a blessing to all the Gentile pagan nations. They were to all see because they walked in faith and obedience to him. They were going to all these nations would look and see. God, why are you so blessed? Look at you. And they would have opportunity what? To witness, to share. Same thing is true for us. As we walk in faith and obedience to the Lord, trusting him every single day. Okay, Lord, this is what you say. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to walk with you. He do the same thing. He blesses our lives. Maybe not materially. Maybe materially. It doesn't matter. His blessing, he knows exactly what he wants to do with us, doesn't he? But the point is, whoever is observing us, Wherever he places us in whatever spheres of relationship he's got us, people are watching us, are they not? Once they know you're a Christian, are they watching you? Waiting for you to slip up one time. They say, I thought you were a Christian. When they look at your life, a life of faith and obedience, they're going to see. God is going to make them see. He's going to open their eyes to look at you, and and they're going to say to you, what is it about you? What is it about you? I don't know. I'm just lucky, I guess. No, no, no. The issue here, 
This is important. And this may come as a surprise. The issue in our passage is not tithing. It is apostasy. You get the difference? Judah is charged here with abandoning God who has chosen them, who has blessed them. And they're charged with turning away from the laws he had given them. He gave the laws to test their loyalty and to mark the path of life that he would bless. He says, this is the way. Walk in it. Read Psalm 119. By keeping back for themselves the tithes and the offerings they owed to God, the people showed their idolatrous hearts in placing themselves before God. It's just that simple. And they showed their callous hearts in leaving the Levites and the poor essentially just to fend for themselves. These verses, despite what we may have thought, despite what we may think we have learned, these verses don't light the way to health and wealth and immediate prosperity. They don't. No, these verses have an eschatological purpose, a future purpose. These verses point the way to a national repentance. Turn to me. When you turn to me, you're going to see miracles happen. And when is Israel going to turn to him? When? When he appears. They point the way to a national repentance that will precede the earthly kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and will be characterized by his protection, his provision, his prosperity, and his very presence. So, how do these verses apply to you and I as Christians? We know how they apply to Israel. Now, how do they apply to us as Christians? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a familiar passage again. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Read with me. The Apostle Paul writes this. Now the context is, he has taken up an offering. Now you know, you know of course, the background, the history of the early church, composed of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, Right? There's animosity between Jews and Gentiles to begin with. The Jews think that the Gentiles are dogs, unclean dogs. Gentiles despise the Jews. Has anything really changed today? No. And so God has taken these two groups of people who despise each other and made them one. And to cement this now, he's brought famine on the Jewish section of the church in Jerusalem. It gives the opportunity for the Gentile church to come to their rescue. And they're going to take up an offering. And Paul's going to call the Gentiles and say, we need to collect an offering for our Jewish brothers. Isn't God amazing how he does things? So that's the context. That's the background. So here's Paul's talking to the Corinthians now, who they have promised to participate in this offering, but they're a little bit slow on the doing it. So Paul speaks to them about this. Chapter 8 and 9. But we're going to read chapter 9. He says, verse 6. Remember this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Hmm. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a what kind of giver? Cheerful giver. So when we give, we should be what? Praise God. Hallelujah. So if you're giving online, you should be praising God, Lord. Thank you. Someone once asked me years ago, they said, well, what if I'm not cheerful? Should I still give? <laughs> yes. But he'd prefer that you be cheerful. And God is able to make some grace abound to you. So that in many things, sometimes, having a little bit of what you need. Yeah, look at, the, look at those words, all. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will what? Abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in what? Thanksgiving to God. This service, verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. At first glance, when we read that Corinthians passage, it may seem to echo the passage in Malachi where God says, I'm going to bless you. You give the tithes, I'll bless you. But on a closer examination, we begin to see that the principles at work are very different in these two passages. Paul is not advocating. Now notice this. Pay attention to me. Paul is not advocating giving that will result in blessing. Let me say that again. He's not advocating in that passage in Corinthians, giving that will result in blessing, but rather blessing that will result in giving. Different from the Malachi passage. The purpose of what he says in verse 8, the purpose of having all you need is that you may what? Abound in every good work, not the opposite. The abundance of God's supply of seed that makes rich in every way is for the purpose of what? Being generous on every occasion. What then is the harvest we reap? What is the harvest we reap from the generosity that is sown? He says it. The harvest of our what? Righteousness. The harvest of our righteousness. It's not going to necessarily be a material harvest. It's not material blessings 
necessarily that we may enjoy as the reward for righteousness and obedience. The harvest of generosity is rather, he says in verse 11, thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving to God. When you understand these things, you just cannot stop thanking him. And the people who benefit by what he's done in you and through you cannot stop thanking him. The motivation of material blessing in the New Testament has a different emphasis from Malachi in the Old Testament. The motivation is different. Notice this, please. God blesses Christians for giving, not because of giving. Do you understand that? He blesses us for giving. He, he gives us all his resources so that we will what? We'll give them away. He doesn't bless us because of this. The question then is, because this is the bottom line, so everybody ends up asking, well, how much? <laughs> how much does God require? As much as you're able. In accordance with what God has blessed you with, in accordance with how God has prospered you. What, what's really your priority list? The New Testament, unlike the Old Testament, lacks specific instructions on the amount we should give. Though, on the other hand, continuing the principle of giving as we have been prospering and according to our means. Acts chapter 11, verse 29, we see the model. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to help the brothers living in Judea. According to our ability. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So as God has blessed us and prospered us, we should set aside a certain amount and designate it for these things. And since the giving of a tenth is a pattern in the Old Testament, even before the Mosaic law was given, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth. Jacob promised God a tenth. He would tithe on whatever God would bless him with. You say, well, where, where did this figure of tenth come from? Have you ever counted on your fingers? Most of us still do. One, two. We count on our fingers, and how many fingers do we have? Typically, 10. 10 means a whole, all 10. What's the minimum amount that I could give? One pinky's worth, a tenth. That's essentially where that tenth came from in the ancient Near East. It was a custom. It was something acceptable in all those cultures, and God just adopted it and used it. People already knew about it but now he solidified it for them. Are you with me? But remember, everything we have, everything we are, belongs to who? All these things are given to us in our very life. Our time, our possessions, our abilities, our talents, all part of our stewardship are gifts from God. So, 
Shall we remember that we live and serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. Which really, when you think about it, is a, is a much higher requirement than Israel's law. Jesus says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We live according to the Spirit. There's no limit. God, you prosper me, I'm going to do it. I'm going to honor you. I know people whose lives literally, literally, are pipelines for God's wealth. It comes in, it goes out. It keeps coming in, it keeps going out. It's astonishing. So, let me conclude with this. Why not put God first? Why not put God first? In the use of your time, in the use of your treasure, and above all, all, all that you are in yourself. Put God first. And see if he will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing you can't contain. Amen? Are you glad you came today? I'm glad. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you again. Thank you that you love us with a love that we cannot really ever comprehend. Thank you that you are faithful to your promises. Thank you that you continue to work in us. Lord, that we can indeed work out your will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Thank you that you are amazing. Thank you for your amazing grace. We love you this morning. We love you this morning. And blessed be your name. Amen? Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.